Hey y'all, this is a preview to the latest premium subscriber only episode to Champagne Sharks. So what you're hearing is a small clip of a longer episode that is available over on patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And it's available to premium subscribers who pay $5 a month. And if you want to hear the rest of the episode, go over to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and subscribe for only $5 a month. You get not only access to this episode in its entirety, but to the whole backlog of premium episodes, which at this point is over 100 episodes at this point so it's a great deal so without further ado here is the preview and i hope we see you on the other side at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks where you can hear the rest i want to talk to you about first a summary of your book because it's something that a lot of people do not hear a lot is about ending the police and police abolition it's kind of something that is beyond the pale for a lot of people so i wanted you to kind of give a summary of your book but also tell us um some of the biggest objections that the most commonly heard objections you hear to it the idea of abolition yeah so you know, the book doesn't exactly use the language abolish the police, although I, I'm certainly part of that, that movement and, and you know, very happy about the conversations we're having about what that means. And I can't speak for the whole movement. I can just sort of speak for myself and say that for me, what, what abolition means, means trying to figure out how to dial back our reliance on leasing and jails and prisons and in every, in every way we can possibly come up with. And what's behind this is an analysis that says that those institutions are always a source of injustice, that even when they might make a slight improvement to this crime problem or that crime problem, they do so at a huge social cost. And that instead of trying to criminalize our way out of every problem under the sun, we need to build robust political movements, fight for the things that we really want, we think will make our communities healthier, safer, and more sustainable. Policing just isn't the way to do that. In terms of the pushback, you know, the, uh, so much of the pushback is from people who don't actually engage the book at all. They see the title or they see me associated with the defund police movement or police abolition. And they're like, you know, well, I hope some rapist comes and, and rapes your children. You know, that. Yeah, that, I've seen that a lot. The, the, who are you going to call when uh, someone wants to rape your wife or your children? I see that in general, which is kind of funny if you know anything about how well the police tend to handle uh, rape cases to begin with. Yeah, I mean, especially in poor communities and communities of color, right? People there are not calling the police to protect them in so many cases because they know that getting the police in their lives can actually just create more harm. Whether they're suffering domestic violence, whether they're in a beef someone, getting the police involved does not necessarily make them any safer. But that's not to say that we want them to have to suffer those abuses without help. This is about creating real concrete targeted interventions that we think will actually make people safer and healthier. So it's it's not about privatizing security. It's not about a war of all of all, not the purge, you know. It's about, oh, we've got a youth violence pro problem. Well, why don't we involve people from the community in trying to work with those young people from a position of mutual respect and understanding? Let's get to the bottom of the beefs and the past traumas and abuse and the cycle of violence in the community, and let's try to break that cycle. 
let's let the older heads talk to the young bloods about, hey, this is not the only way we could go at this. Let's get together and try to figure out a way to let this pass. Let's focus on, you know, getting into a boxing program or learning a plumbing trade or dealing with this, these traumas that we've grown up with, right, in a violent society. And it's something that you talk about that uh, you mentioned, which I'm glad you mentioned, is a lot of the writings that kind of pathologize the black community and uh, poor communities of color in general, people who kind of relish in dysfunction or thrive in it. You gave some examples, things like the, the Unheavenly City by Banfield and 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 the Broken Windows stuff by James Wilson and George Kelling. Like you give a nice history of the intellectual uh, strain that informs a lot of this stuff. And I have to imagine that to be part of the pushback too that you must get, that people must think, oh, these people don't want to live civilly the way other people want to live. So you can't trust them to handle these things on their own. That's right. I mean, when we when we see people saying, oh no, the only thing we can do to manage this problem is to turn the police loose on people, that includes within it a lot of racism. Now, the people who say that, they don't think they're racist, mostly. They don't want to, a lot of them don't want to be racist, but, but when they turn the problems of community of color, communities of color over to the police to solve, they are reproducing racial inequality. They're participating in the demonization of those communities. They're harming people directly through criminalization, but also it's rooted in this idea these communities aren't capable of working through these problems on their own if they had the resources and the space to do so. And that's really at the heart of the writings of Edward Banfield, who in the 60s says, you know, well, if we try to help poor people, they'll just waste it, they'll just squander it. This was the kind of precursor to the welfare queen politics of the Reagan administration and, and the broken windows theory and, uh, and the super predator myth, right? It's dehumanizing and it's racist. And you mentioned the bell curve too, which kind of takes the same uh, tack, but gives it an even more intractable origin by saying, oh, it's IQ. These people genetically can't even um, think of constructive solutions or be motivated to because they're just high testosterone, high testosterone low IQ uh, animals. And I, and I think it's very important to understand the intellectual roots of, of this stuff and, and why a lot of these beliefs are so intractable because they've been validated by supposed intellectuals as well. Yeah, these guys were all friends. There was a whole hub of this at, at the uh, University of Chicago. And it also included people like Milton Friedman, who brought us, you know, neoliberalism, deregulation of the economy and turn it all over to the banks. You know, that these people are responsible for the destruction of huge swaths of the United States. The, 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 the toxicity of their views cannot be overstated. And, yeah, and, and it's amazing how validated they still are as far as like yes. places will still have Charles Murray on to talk about stuff. And it's, it just blows my mind. And, and, and to see so-called progressive big city mayors, including a lot of black and brown mayors, racing the broken windows theory, racing police-led strategies to solve their, their problems is so infuriating. It just shows how degraded the Democratic Party is in terms of having any kind of progressive analysis. 
even pop science books or pop books like um, Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, I remember, uh, which the book is very popular with the type of uh, NPR tote bag type of uh, <laughs> liberal, you know, um, yeah. that book was spoke very glowingly about our broken windows and, and listed as like the tipping point for white crime dropped in New York so drastically, even though it dropped nationwide. Uh, similarly, even places that didn't have broken windows, but it was a, I remember reading that book and being convinced when I was younger, like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Like, it was a very glib type of thing that when I got older, I realized, oh, wow, this was, this has been debunked so many times. But I think that book, million plus copy bestseller, millions probably, um, it's very ingrained in the culture. And it's not just from right-wing think tank people. It's people that are kind of seen as apolitical or... And Malcolm Gladwell was a black man on top of that. Well, it just goes to show we should not turn anything over to economists. Yeah. These are these are, these are are theories that are rooted in this kind of econometric view of the world that are these, you know, rational robots that we can use rational choice theory to explain their behavior, that everything can be reduced to a numeric model. And then they, you know, they find ways to cook up justifications for all kinds of things. And, and they're almost always completely wrong. They, they never predict anything accurately. Accurately, if they did. They'd be playing the stock market instead of writing stupid books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he said, even an economist, he's like a armchair economist. He's just a, a journalist who right, but he's relying on the work of economists. Exactly, he's exactly. Bought their whole hook, line, and sinker approach to the social sciences. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's like an armchair type of uh, expert who just talks to a couple of economists, and not even all economists, because not even all economists agree with right those economists. So it's a very uh, unreliable type of thing. But I want to know, how did you end up in in this space? Like what uh, brought you this particular topic in space? Because you're very active in it. And I was wondering what attracted you to it, how you ended up here. Yeah, well, I certainly didn't plan it this way. I I went to college back in the mid 80s to study things like, uh, you know, urban economic development and uh, urban affairs. And uh, when I got out of school, I got a job at the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness, working on housing policy and, you know, how to get the city to spend more money on on healthcare services for the poor and things like that. And it was during that period that we began to see the implementation of broken windows policing. Now, I didn't know what that was at the time. I just knew that the, the folks that we were working with were all complaining about this really high level of police harassment. My boss, who's like, well, you've been arrested. You've been in court before. You go talk to the see, see if you can figure out what's going on. You know, go go look at what's happening in the court. Are they getting arrested? Are they getting tickets? What's it for? You know, what are the police doing? Let's try to get to the bottom of this and pull together a, a committee of attorneys and, and outreach workers and others to, to try to sort this out and think about how to deal with it. And, and what became clear to me pretty quickly was that what was happening was is that the city had basically given up on the possibility of actually housing and that they were just going to turn the problem over to the police to manage. And that insight, you know, has stuck with me ever since that that when we see an expansion in the role of policing, what we're seeing is a political failure. And and so, you know, I went back to graduate school 93 in New York do like global city stuff to look at you know, the impact of globalization on local policy, right when Giuliani gets elected. And then it was all the same stuff again, the, the, 
decriminalization, failure to do anything about the housing crisis. And so I just kind of got pulled into that work, working with the with advocates in New York and, you know, ended up writing a dissertation that tried to explain what was going on and you know, kind of got a job as a criminologist rather than an urbanist because that's what was you know, on offer and became a policing expert. But I always retain that sense that, you know, there's no justice in using the police to do these things. All right. So that was a preview. If you like what you hear and you want to hear the rest of the episode and a hundred more episodes, then by all means, go over to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. Take care, y'all.